Good morning. So good to be with you as we've gathered together to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For those now joining in online as well, uh, as you gather friends, family together, so wonderful to be able to worship the Lord together as one community. I'd love for you to turn to a passage of scripture that I, very frankly, I, I spoke on on the weekend that I candidated here at this church. John chapter 11, beginning with verse 17 where we find these words that take us down all the way to verse 27. It's a, it's a profound passage of scripture that I, I think will not only minister to our hearts, but furthermore allow us to see even better how it links to what was covered previously when we're looking at the signs found in the Gospel of John that point towards Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Beginning with John chapter 11, Verse 17, down through verse 27, we find uh, these words. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them with concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to her, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It's extraordinary passage that's here because we're looking at the way in which the second member of the Trinity comes to comfort his people and bring us perspective regarding matters of life and death, who he is, what he's done, and where all this leads as we look to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, as we're coming before you, we're coming before you as people born in sin. It's our nature. Yet at the same time we realize that the sinless one came to die for the sinful ones. So the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, 
entered into this world for the singular purpose of dying for our sins so that we might live for him. We praise you. And we're asking that at any of these services today and for those watching online, as they gather friends, and we know sometimes it's up to 30 people around one screen, that if there's a prompting of the Holy Spirit and you're working in that heart, they put faith and trust even now in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Father, these moments are important as we examine the signs that point to Christ. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we pray in these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Vermishave was a brand of brushless shaving cream that was sold from about 1925 to 1966. And what always distinguished their, their approach towards communicating who they were, what they were about, is that they would have this advertisement campaign that included rhymes on signs throughout the nation's roadways. And generally, what they would do is this. On the first sign, they would begin with a phrase that would rhyme with the second sign, and on and on and onwards, until you finally got to the final sign, you find out just what these signs were intended to communicate. I'm reading one of the classic signs that were found, particularly in Minnesota. They were broken up in, in six parts, leading to the final part, the seventh. And the first sign read, if you. Now all the children, I'm sure, in the vehicle at this point were saying, there's the sign, what comes next? And so everybody's leaning forward as they continue to track what's happening on this journey. If you don't know whose signs these are, you can't have driven very far. Bermashev. And the kids would always be excited when they saw that final sign because they know how all this fits together. What the Apostle John has done is to fit together a series of signs leading towards this, what I would call, pinnacle sign, the raising of Lazarus from the grave a week before Jesus Christ would die, so that they would be able to understand that this one who has thus far healed people in their illness is able to raise one from the grave. He's got resurrection power. The Apostle John has now set up a sequence of signs on the roadway that leads towards this incredible event. Jesus has appeared on the scene now, making his way to Bethany. Lazarus has died. And what we want to do is to be able to find four significant ways by which Jesus Christ brings comfort to his people. And the first comes out of verse 17 down through verse 19. 
We're going to put it like this, that as you and I, as we consider the comfort Christ brings to his people, I want to begin here by noting with you, again, the critical timing our Lord exhibits. Now, as you begin reading this, he has been informed by some messengers that have traveled roughly about 110 miles northward into the Transjordan region that his closest friend of inner circles, Lazarus, has now passed away. Now, when Jesus came, what you and I are told is that he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Now, as we build off of last week's teaching, and if you were not able to be present, you'll want to check it out online as we build the, this signage, if you will, and this sequence. But now four days have passed. Why is that so significant? There is a tr- superstition throughout the land that the soul hovered over the deceased body for the first three days. And the evidence, the fact that the person had in fact passed away, would be the fourth day when orders would begin to permeate from the tomb. Until that point, one would still wonder where this person could be resuscitated. What Jesus has done is he's entered into the cultural thinking And he's saying, I'm going to make absolutely certain that these people understand that Lazarus, in fact, is dead. He will wait out the full four days. If he comes any sooner, then it will be in keeping with the previous miracles that proved that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the great physician, the great healer. He healed people of their illnesses, but they had not reached a point of saying, but he also raises one from the grave. They haven't gotten there yet in their thinking. Not yet part of their formula. And so now Jesus, with this cultural assumption before him, arrives on the scene and he is following the schedule, not of the people around Lazarus, but the one who is the ultimate keeper of the schedule, the sovereign of the universe, God the Father. So now four days have gone by. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. This is strategic. Not only the timing of it all, but also the positioning of this. By having this setting two miles from Jerusalem, then what takes place here in Bethany, it will be immediately communicated to both followers of Christ and those opponents to Jesus Christ, setting in motion the final week of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, bearing in mind the Gospel of John, in essence, is divided in two parts, with the second part, beginning in John 12 to the end, deals with simply the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Shows you how much emphasis is placed upon that. So now, Bethany, strategically positioned where it is, near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And now, notice what is occurring here. And for those that have been or are in the grieving process, think about what you see in verse 19. 
Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary. Why, we ask? To console them concerning their brother. Joe Bailey writes, upon having seen his son pass away, I was sitting alone, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I already knew were true and believed. I was unmoved except to wish he would go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk, didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something answered briefly, prayed simply, and then left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. There's extraordinary wisdom in the way in which we understand how Jesus would bring comfort, how they brought comfort, and how life is to be understood in the midst of death. Jesus is putting himself at risk. He's going to head 110 miles into hostile territories, heading from the northern portions of Galilee, southward to Bethlehem, Bethany, so close to Jerusalem. Look at what appears on the screen, the map, that allows us to be able to understand the significance of this journey. And as he makes his way on this journey, what we need to be able to understand is that this area that we are looking up here, uh, this area was very, very open to what Jesus had to say, what Jesus would do, including the Transjordan area. As he makes his way southward, he makes his way to Bethany. Bethany, which is in the West Bank today. Jerusalem, so close, two miles away. And if you and I were to find a way to make our um, presence known in the West Bank, notice what comes next on the screen, because here, in fact, is the presumed tomb of Lazarus. And it's even written in Arabic, as well as explained for us who would be on this pilgrimage together. It's in the Jewish language as well. If you're interested in seeing more of this, David Hyman's got a nice YouTube video presentation where he goes down into the tomb. We'll explore that a little later. Uh, next Sunday. 
But what we have to bear in mind now is that Jesus has moved into a setting where he himself is at risk. But it's all part and parcel of God's schedule for Jesus Christ because as much as the people there would have thought that this was all about Lazarus, you see the master plan as such is that this is really all about Jesus. When delay occurs, God has a better time and a better way. And when death occurs, God has a better plan and a better purpose. Though we might not necessarily be able to understand that purpose as of yet. But here we see now thus far that Jesus has put himself at risk by going into a setting that was going to set in motion his own movements towards the cross of, uh, that we know will produce salvation. And you and I have just explored the timing of it all, the critical timing that our Lord exhibits here that the delay was really part of the design. And maybe this morning you feel like you're you're caught up in a series of delays and you're wondering where's the design? You've got to allow the purpose to continuously be revealed over the course of days, weeks, life, eternity, and then you'll see how all this fits together to bring glory and honor to your Lord. The critical timing that our Lord exhibits here is in verses 17, 18, and 19. But now, second of all, what I want to notice with you is the verbal assurance that our Lord provides in 20 down through verse 24. Now, you're going to see a lot of the personalities of Martha and Mary unfolding once again in, this, in these verses. Because we're told that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Now, Jesus would have spent a lot of time in the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. They enjoyed, experienced rich fellowship together. Notice here that while Martha is making her way, Mary remains seated in the house. This is such a Martha-Mary moment, you see. And so in 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, stop right there. Notice this is not a rebuke. She's not getting in his face. She knows he's moving into hostile territory. All she's saying, in essence, is this You are the great healer, you are the great physician. If you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. What he, she doesn't know is that he chose not to be there so that Lazarus would die. Because there is something even greater about to occur. Are you struck by the if-onlys of life? 
if only we hadn't moved. If only I had taken that job. If only I had listened to her. If only I had more money. Now the question is, what are your if onlys? And how does it fit in with this purpose that God has for living? Now, you're going to have to be like Martha and take them to Jesus. He's in control. He cares. He's even willing to provide comfort when he himself is at risk. This is amazing stuff. Martha, she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But it's almost as if now there's a mid-course correction that takes place. I'm thinking being at sea again. Where the winds seem to be contrary, but then they are moving still in a different direction. And she needs to readjust what she has said. Take the if you and tie it in verse 22, the but even now. But even now I know. Notice her certainty. That whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I love what Jesus said. Here is this verbal assurance that, that we're talking about. Your brother will rise again. Now, he's offering her perspective that would have been understood from Martha who knew her Old Testament and Martha said to him she shows that she knows the Old Testament I know there's that word again I know I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day what is interesting at this point with her saying this is that she's speaking of what will occur eventually but surprise, surprise, Jesus has something in mind for what will occur immediately. But he's got to first draw her out, you see. He wants her to articulate her theology without correcting her thinking. And sometimes you've got to allow the person to talk and minister to them at their point of need as they draw scripture to the forefront of how to process what has occurred. Martha would have known that in Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, backs up what she has just said to Jesus. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he'll stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. You see, Martha was orthodox in her theology. And she was a firm believer in, in the eventual resurrection of all who put faith and trust in the Messiah. But she's, she's thinking eventually, Jesus has come all this way, putting himself at risk, deal with this thing immediately. But rather than just simply telling her at the onset, uh, your brother will rise again, 
by stating your brother's going to rise now. He draws her out so that truth might enter in. And there are going to be times in the difficulties of life what God is going to do is to draw you out so you're prepared for truth to enter in. You find yourself being drawn out these days? How? In what way? What's God doing? Paul Azinger was a very gifted professional golfer. Diagnosed with cancer at the age of 33, winner of the PGA Championship, 10 tournaments, victories to his credit by the point in which he was involved in an interview. He wrote, a genuine feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. Then another reality hit me even harder regarding my cancer. I'm going to die eventually anyway, whether from cancer or from something else. It's just a question of when. Everything I had accomplished in golf was becoming meaningless to me. All I wanted to do was to live. But then he remembered something that Larry Moody, who, who teaches scriptures on, on the uh, professional tours, said to him, Zinger, that was his nickname. We are not in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying. Nope. We're in the land of the dying, trying to get into the land of the living. Paul Azinger, in the interview, then referenced scripture. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own life? If it's really possible to live forever, then there is no more relevant issue than one dealing with that even now. If a man dies, shall he live again? The Bible says, if only in this life we have hope, then we are of all people to be pitied. The more you live, the more you realize that life is coming to a dead end. If it is futile, if there is not hope beyond the grave. And now what Jesus is about to do is to offer a physical illustration two miles from Jerusalem that there is hope beyond the grave. You have entered into something extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, in this meeting on the road that leads to Bethany. Have you met Jesus on your road? Now, there's a third way in which Jesus unexpectedly comforts us. Not only the critical timing he exhibits in 17 through 19 and the verbal assurance he gives us in 20 down through verse 24, but thirdly, the personal claim our Lord makes here now in 25, 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Stop right there. 
Jesus is the only one in history who could be both self-centered and Christ-centered. The only one. Because for him, being self-centered was being Christ-centered. Because he was Christ. How many times when you're hurting, have you heard someone expressing their views from a self-centered standpoint? When what you need is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who has the right to say what is being said. But notice furthermore, it does not read, I produce resurrection in life. It is wrapped up in the very essence of who he is. And the I am statement takes us right back to the Exodus 3 account again. Where Moses standing at the burning bush is wondering, and what am I going to do when I get to Egypt? And Jesus is saying in essence to him at the burning bush. Because I believe this was the pre-incarnate Lord speaking at this point. Tell them, I am sent you, Yahweh. And now Jesus, after already having stated in a prior chapter in in the book of John uh, that before Abraham was born, I am. The Apostle John groups together all the great I am statements of Jesus together with the tremendous signage pertaining to Jesus. And now, pivotally, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. What I want you to see next is that not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus utilizes the word believe. Can you track with me? Here it comes. Whoever believes in me, not about me, there might be people here today that believe a lot about Jesus. The question is, do you believe in Jesus? Have you put your life in him? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But then there's this third question. Do you believe this? And whenever I have conducted a funeral and I'm standing at the grave site for that private moment with the, with the loved ones, I always end with this passage of scripture and pose this particular question. Do you believe this? And I cannot tell you what powerful responses I get. I've had people literally shout, echoing through the graveyard, yes. I believe. You see here the personal claim that our Lord makes? This is an extraordinary way to bring comfort. He's bringing himself into the grieving process. Have you brought Christ into the grieving process? There is one more unexpected way in which we find Christ comforting. 
We've said the critical timing, the verbal assurance, and furthermore, the personal claim. But now fourthly, I want you to note the essential faith that our Lord requires. He's drawn her out in the form of a question. She's going to have to, for her own benefit, articulate what she believes. And when you are hurting, there is nothing more valuable than to verbally express to someone else just what you believe in the midst of your pain. It's healing for the soul, you know. She said to him, yes, Lord. She says, Lord, I believe. You are the Christ, which means Messiah, the Son of God, coming into the world. This is loaded with theology, all within one response to Christ. I would say that one of the greatest forms of healing that has occurred at this point is Mary ministering, rather Martha ministering to Martha, guided by Jesus, as she now finds herself being drawn out with truth that she now pours back in. Do you allow others to do that when they're hurting? This is extraordinary wisdom that's being demonstrated here. When Winston Churchill planned his funeral, he instructed that the end, after the benediction, that there would be a bugler stationed high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. If you've been there, you can picture this. High in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, and the bugler would play taps. It's the universal musical sign. It says, day is over. But then came another dramatic moment. As Churchill had instructed, another bugler was placed on the other side of the massive dome and he played the notes of Reveille, the universal musical sign that a new day had dawned and it's time to rise. And what I want you to be able to see when you compare what began at the what was there at the onset of this passage to how this passage ends is this. When the people arrived on the scene, as they did to minister to Martha and Mary, they came playing taps. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, he came playing Reveille. And the culture of death at that moment was being overwhelmed by the Christ of life, which is what happens when we bring Jesus to the hurting heart. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we thank you now. You meet us on our road. You meet us at our point of need. And you do things in the most unexpected of ways.
right when we think we've got it figured out, we find out we don't have it figured out. And we've got to be able to distinguish between the uncertainties and the certainties. But the absolute certainty is that Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the absolute certainty is that he died and three days later he was raised from the grave. We praise you for all this. I pray right now for the one watching online who's hurting. Maybe it's a group right now. They're holding hands. Minister at the point of need. For any of these services today likewise, where these truths need to be applied to the life and the here and the now. I pray you'll meet at the point of need and we'll give you all the praise and all the glory because it's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless.